I gotta tell you, after six months, and I'm sure after six years and even 60 years, I'm gonna continue to learn what it means to be a pastor. I think one of them is listening to your congregation, listening to the heart of your congregation. And uh, as you all know, I'm a bit of a planner, so I could probably tell you what I'm preaching a year from today. I won't, but we'll be somewhere in 1 John 4. I guess I did. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's not always the best thing to have everything planned out because you don't leave room for the Holy Spirit to work and to move. So I am preaching on the passage of Enoch this morning, but we're actually not getting to Enoch until point three. On Friday, I had a conversation with uh, someone and went home and prayed about it and said, Lord, if I'm over planning and not allowing for you to use me to build these sermons, then change my sermon change my heart as I go to prepare it. Well, I forgot that I prayed that, and I got to work on Saturday to build my PowerPoint, and you know what? It was not working. I couldn't do it. So I let the Lord take over, and it's not the sermon I had planned. It's not all about the ascension of Enoch. In fact, it's more about Jared than Enoch. But I think the Lord was leading. So I hope that, uh, that this will bless him. It didn't change the name of the sermon, it's still the ascent of Enoch because that's where we are arriving at the end. But once again, I think it's good to stand out here because that's what God is doing in the text. Enoch stands out among all the others. So rather than just a simple one word title, I am leaning into the Shakespeare theme and each title is named after a Shakespeare quote. So I hope you all appreciate that. But here's our main point. God knows the beginning from the end. Nothing surprises him, and God is a God of prophecy. He has given us his word for the future, and that is absolutely sure and absolutely certain. He knows the beginning from the end, and he reveals it to us for our comfort and for our teaching. So this morning, we're going to start by looking at the names of these patriarchs. Last week I told you I wasn't going to tell you yet because I wanted you to focus on the fact that these are historical figures. These are men and these were their names. But this morning we're going to start by looking at their names. What did they mean? Because they were named for very specific purposes, to recognize what God was doing in their day and to recognize the promises of God as well. So that's our first point. What is in a name? It's the recognition of truth. So we start with Adam. God named him. What did God name Adam? Well, he named him dirt. It's humbling, isn't it? Adam comes from the Hebrew noun Adama, which means red dirt. This is what God made him from, wasn't it? God made the ground, and then he formed man out of it. Man forgot that he is dirt formed by the hand of God and thought that he could make choices for himself over against the word of God. Man forgot his place. He forgot who God was and thought that he could be as a God. Adam's name should have reminded him of his position. Adam's name was God's recognition of truth. And Adam follows suit. 
when he has a son, he and Eve name their son Seth. Eve says, for God has appointed me another offspring. Seth was the appointed offspring of promise. Eve recognized God's promise and trusted when he said that through this son now is going to come this promise of a redeemer, of a savior. And so Seth's name means appointed. And then comes Enosh. We're a couple hundred years in now, and perhaps they see the evidence of aging. But even if they're not yet seeing the evidence of aging, they have the example of Abel, who has died. This earth has seen the death of man. Seth names his son yet another humbling name, mortality, vanity, the same word used by Solomon to say, all is vanity. And then we come to Kenan. Now Kenan's name is very similar to Cain. Basically all that's different is an inflection at the end with a double N and the vowel pointing being changed. Most of you don't know much about Hebrew, but the vowel pointings were added quite a while later. The core of the Hebrew text is always the consonants, and the consonants are the same. In Genesis 4.1, we get evidence of what Cain's name meant. Cain's name means gotten, received, a possession. Eve got Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child who is the Lord. Later we get a child named Tubal-Cain. And his name, oh, I didn't post it on here. His name also has the idea of gotten, a gotten possession, but one wrought by his own hands. Tubal-Cain was the forger of implements of bronze and iron. He was the creator of possessions. Kenan's name means possession. Some render it as smith, like a blacksmith, but a better translation is simply possession. And then we have Mahalalel, which means praise God. And if you look at all of these names, they are all praising God because they are all the recognition of truth. And that really is what worship is. It's the simple recognition of truth, God's word. If you paid attention to the songs this morning, they're all declaring truth. Revelation 4.8, I think, is one of the greatest worship passages in all of scripture. In fact, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 have such an amazing chorus of worship. And all of the statements are pointed towards attributes of God, the working of God that he has done on this earth through all of history. So the four living creatures, these four cherubim before the throne of God, they sing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when these living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him, which is what they did in that statement, 
to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders, those are representatives of us in heaven. Those are church elders in the heavenlies. They will fall down before him who sits on the throne and they will worship him who lives forever and ever and they will cast their crowns before the throne saying what? Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. What is worship? Worship is a recognition of truth. It's the proper response to hearing truth, is worship. That's why we worship on Sunday mornings. It is our proper response to the truth of who God is. I had a question a couple of weeks back from someone in a Bible study. When we were looking at Revelation 16, and there's an interlude while the final bold judgments are coming down on the earth, the last judgments that this earth will undergo before the kingdom of the Messiah comes. And this interlude breaks out of the judgments and says, Righteous are you, who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, and they deserve it. Well, the question was, why do these angels need to tell God that he deserves it? God already knows that. Yes, he does. But do we know that? Do we recognize that? And that's what our worship does, is our worship shows God that, yes, we're listening. Yes, we are internalizing your word. Yes, your word matters to us, and we trust you. And these names are doing just that. These names are recognizing that God's word is true. And how interesting that even in the line of Cain, we have names that are recognitions of God's truth. We'll look at this more when we get to the timeline of Jared. But Irad had a son named Mahujael, which means God gives life. And Methushael means the man of God. There was a revival even before the flood, before Noah. Before Enoch, there was a revival. And men began to call on the name of the Lord. And these men named their children in recognition of who God was, in recognition of truth. Now, sadly, revivals end. Sadly, God has no grandchildren, only children. Each individual approaches God in faith. And so the seventh in the line of Cain is Lamech, one of the most sinister characters besides Cain in the book of Genesis. And now all of these names are a recognition of truth that is either present or past. But that is not the only truth that God gives us. He gives us truth about the future as well. And this is just as certain, just as sure, and just as true. 
And you'll remember, I said, almost everyone in the second half of the line from Adam to Noah through Seth stands out. They stand out because something is changing, something is happening, and God is working in human history to protect the seed line. These names are not just coincidental. They reveal things about what was happening in history, and of course we have to corroborate that with other scripture. But when we do, we get a much more vivid picture of what was going on in the days of Noah. And so these names give us information about what was future at that time. Oops. And so we have Enoch, our standout, our entry into this list of names that follows what I coined the Shakespeare principle. It breaks rhyme and meter. It stands out. It doesn't follow that regular pattern of A lives, A fathers B, A lives, A fathers more kids, A lives, and A dies. Because Enoch lives, fathers Methuselah, and it doesn't say here that he lives 300 years, it says he walks with God. 300 years. This is different. This stands out. We should pay attention. And at the end, it does not say that Enoch died. It said that Enoch walked with God. Both in life and in death, mankind has the opportunity to walk with God, but in walking with God, there is no death for Enoch. And it may be for us as well that there is no death. We'll look at that in our third point. But either way, this stands out. Enoch stands out. His time on this earth is incredibly short, and that was a blessing from God, I'm certain. But notice those around him. Jared and Methuselah are the two longest-living patriarchs recorded in Scripture. We often forget about Jared because he died a mere seven years before, before Methuselah. But he is the second-oldest living patriarch. So why is Enoch, this very unique entry, sandwiched by these two very long ages? What's happening? Why is Lamech living only 777 years? Why does Noah then become the third longest living patriarch? Because these are not following the natural progression that we saw from Adam to Mahalalel, where their ages are naturally declining because of genetic mutations because of the fall. God is intervening. God is working in human history. And so we want to pay attention. And when we get to Jared, his name does look a little different from the others. His is simply a verb in Hebrew. Actually, in Hebrew, it's pronounced Yared, which is the Hebrew verb for to descend, to come down. Now, 
Most interpret this as a descent in the ages. This is the recognition of truth that the ages are declining. Well, it bothers me that that doesn't hold true for Jared. At that point, he becomes the oldest living patriarch. His name seems a bit contradictory. And the two longest living patriarchs after him are all future from him. If that's a recognition of God's truth of the ages declining, then its, uh, it's data is a bit off. Now that's not to say God couldn't do that, but this seems like a cop-out when we get to the text and say, well, I don't want to believe what it says, so let me interpret it this way so it's comfortable. There's another option, could be the descent of the seed line, that the seed line is progressing, that it's descending down through history. But this is never the use of the verb yared. This is ignoring the Hebrew. Because the verb yared means to come down or to go down or to descend. And it's used by Moses for descending a mountain. When he comes down from the mountain, this is the verb used. But you know, it's also used for the birds that come down at the covenant cut with Abraham. In Genesis 15, 11, it says the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abraham drove them away. This is the verb, yared. These angels came down. And so what I hope to show you this morning is that it was probably before the lifetime of Jared that the angels fell to this earth. That it wasn't in the time of Enoch, or even in the time of Jared, but in the time of Mahalalel. During that revival on earth, that angels came down to mix with men against the will of God during a revival and changed that revival, ended that revival. In Jude 6, we hear about these angels. Jude says, those are the angels who did not keep their own domain. They abandoned their proper abode. Their domain and their abode gives us a very narrow definition of what they left. Not only did they, left their proper, did they leave their proper place that God had put them in, their position among angels, but they also left their proper location. They descended from heaven to earth. So what exactly happened? You know, this is a very controversial topic. You might not ever hear a sermon preached that uh, takes such a solid stance on one option. You might hear a few different options preached and the preacher tell you, now you decide what you think is true. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you what I believe the text is saying. And I don't think there's any two ways about it. In 2 Peter 2, verse 4, it said God did not spare those angels when they sinned. What angels? 
These are distinct from the other fallen angels, the angels that didn't come down to earth, but are Satan's angels, Satan's demons. But he cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. They're locked away under lock and key. These aren't the demons that we see in the Gospels. These angels are solidly locked away awaiting the final judgment. What did they do that was so bad that made their judgment so severe? Well, Peter indicates that these angels fell before the time of Noah. He continues and says, God did not spare that ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Moses knows this history too. He gives it to us. He gives it to Israel. He says, now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Notice we've got men and daughters of men here, humans and humans. Then Moses makes a distinction that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Now we're going to cover this in more detail when we actually get to Genesis 6. But again, there is a liberal concert or there is a liberal interpretation of this and there is a conservative interpretation. The conservative interpretation takes God at face value, looks at the text and says, how does the text use this term sons of God? And we find that in the Old Testament, this is only ever used of angels. These sons of God, these angels, directly from the hand of God created, not like men who are in Adam's image. No longer sons of God, because they are not the direct creation of God, but the creation of God through the line of Adam. We become sons of God at what point? When we are born again by the Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ. We become a new creation. These sons of God were the direct creation of the hand of God, all created at one time. Not meant to propagate. And what do they do? They come down and they take wives for themselves, whomever they choose from the daughters of men that they saw to be beautiful. And we might ask, is there any other evidence of this? When did this happen? Well, for that, again, we look at the line of Cain. We look at the eighth from Cain, the eighth generation. And we saw a very interesting entry. The first name of a woman in a genealogy. This does not happen very often. When this happens, it's for a purpose. We see this in the genealogy of Christ, that God shows his faithfulness by including the names of some of the women in Jesus' lineage. But we're not told specifically why Naama is included in this list. Moses kind of seems to imply that his audience would understand. 
Well, I think we understand when we look at the Hebrew, because what does her name mean? Beautiful. These angels came down and saw that the women of earth were beautiful. What else do we see at this time begin to happen? The introduction for the first time of metallurgy, of poetry, of music. We see advances in nearly every single aspect of life. Incredible advances, in fact. We have some extra-biblical evidence as well. Now, I don't like to use pseudepigraphal books. I tend to avoid them because they are not scripture, and some people use them as scripture. So I want to make it very clear that this is no more authoritative than a passage of Josephus' history or Herodotus' history. This is not the inspired word of God, but this is how the Jews before the time of Christ interpreted this passage in Genesis. So in Jubilees chapter 4, verse 15, it says, Mahalalel took for himself a wife, and she bore a son for him the third week in the sixth year of Jubilee, and he called him Jared. Why? Because in his days, the angels of the Lord, who are called the watchers, came down to the earth. And when the children of men began to multiply on the surface of the earth, and the daughters were born to them, that the angels of the Lord saw that they were good to look at. Then they took wives for themselves from all of those whom they chose, and they bore children for them, and they were giants. And injustice increased upon the earth, and all flesh corrupted its ways. Now, Jubilees also tells us of the different scientific advancements that were made when these watchers came down. But I think those are better listed in the actual text of Genesis. Oops, I included that already. But now you might object and say, but wait. If you are saying Mahalalel named his son Jared, fall or descend, because this was the time that the angels fell, isn't it difficult to reconcile the fact that Mahalalel is the fifth generation from Adam and Naama is the eighth? Well, there's a simple explanation for that. Though Seth is the progeny of Adam, he's not the first progeny. He's not the first child born to Adam. In fact, he wasn't born for the first 130 years of human history. Cain was probably built, born in the first few years. Cain is Adam's oldest son, and Seth came along over 100 years after that. So we've already shifted it by at least one, if not two generations. Notice as well that we're not told how old any of these patriarchs in Cain's line are at the time they bear children. Why? Because there is no seed promise to Cain's line. And that's important when we look at the line of Seth. Because it's not the oldest child listed. It's the seed promise child that is listed. So Adam, having Seth at 130, wasn't because he wasn't able to have children until 130 or 65 but because it took 130 years for God to fulfill that promise to Adam of a seed son. The same for Seth, 105 years. 
Same for Enosh, 90 years. I think even 70 and 65 years might not be indicating the oldest son, but simply the seed line son. These long years that these patriarchs waited for God's promise does not indicate how old people were naturally when they started having children. Cain's line was probably moving a bit faster. It's an error to say that Lamech of the seventh generation is by necessity a contemporary of Enoch. In fact, I think Lamech was probably a contemporary of Mahalalel. There's more evidence in the text. Genesis 4.26, we see that there was a revival before the time of Kenan, before the time of Enosh. It says in Genesis 4.26, to Seth, to him was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then, after Enosh was born, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And we had evidence of that. In fact, we have evidence of that in both genealogies. But our evidence for that in Cain's genealogy comes after the fifth generation. For Adam's, it comes after the second generation. Notice the two long ages that it took for that seed son to be born. You could fit two generations into each one of those generations by the lowest number just in Adam's genealogy. So what's likely happening here is Seth and Irad are alive at the same time. Because Cain is Adam's oldest child, and Enoch is Cain's oldest child. This was the child that he had when he left uh, the presence of the Lord to wander in the land of wandering, the land of Nod. And he quickly had a son, Irad. And by the time he had Irad, Seth was now having Enosh, and there was a revival on earth. And men, even from Cain's line, began to call on the name of the Lord and name their children in recognition of God's truth. So here's what I believe happened. The revival happened 235 years into human history. And after another 200 years, during this revival, angels came down to mingle with humanity. And what was the result of that? What happened because of this? Genesis 6.12 says, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. How was it corrupt? All flesh had corrupted itself upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. What happened was because of these children born not from Adam, but from an unsanctioned union between angels and the daughters of men. 
These became violent on the earth. These were the giants. These were the great men. Probably, possibly, where we get things like Greek mythology. We're not that creative as humans. We think we are, but we're not. Our history gets corrupt as we go along, and these were not gods, but these were demons. These were fallen angels mixing with humanity. And the Bible recognizes that these were different. They stood out among God's children. Now, I didn't include the passage from Hebrews, but do you remember why Jesus Christ had to come in the flesh? To save his kinsmen. To save those in the image of Adam. What is Satan doing? What is his attack on the seed line in this generation? But the corruption of the seed of Adam. So that a kinsman redeemer won't be possible. Satan does not want us to believe this history because he wants us blind to his tactics. Because he is also not that creative. He's not very good at coming up with new schemes. He recycles them. And we're told that there would be this sort of conflict. In the same promise of a redeemer, we're told when God is cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now that's a prophecy just as much as the second part is. He will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now this speaks of the cross and the second return of Jesus Christ where he finally squashes all evil and puts death away forever. But the first part speaks of the process of getting to the cross. There would be attacks on the seed of the woman. Satan was pitted against humanity to stop Jesus Christ from getting to the cross. He's going after the seed line. This is not the righteous children of Seth not allowed to marry the unrighteous line of Cain. This is the line of Cain being more susceptible to this sort of deception and this sort of sin, mixing with angels and threatening then to mix with the line of Noah. Now it's interesting how many people get on the boat with Noah. Just seven, eight in total. What about Noah's siblings? What about Noah's aunts and uncles? Great aunts and great uncles, where are they? They are in the line of Seth. Why aren't they on the boat if they are the righteous line of Seth? Because these angelic sinners are trying to corrupt the line of the promised seed. And they come very close. But God is protecting that line. And God wipes them off the face of this earth. 
We look at the world around us today and say, why isn't God bringing judgment? We see wickedness and evil all around. God's not wiping us out with a flood or like he promised. He's not raining down the fire of heaven on them. Why? Well, God is patient and God is persevering. But that was the end of his patience because it threatened his promises. His promises must come to pass. And so he stepped into human history and ended that corruption. And he so punished those angels that no other angels ever dared to do that again because the judgment was absolutely certain and absolutely sure. Now we might ask the question then, why is Moses recording this for Israel? Why is it important for them? There is an application for Israel in their time. It's not corruption of mankind with angels, but God is separating the people of Israel for a very particular purpose. Once again, he is separating them for the purpose of protecting the seed line to the Messiah. And what does he tell them? But that when they go into the land of Canaan, they're not to mix with the people of that land. And in the book of Numbers, we have a record of them mixing with the Midianite women, whom they were told not to mix with. And so it says in Numbers 25, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And how does he act? He acts in judgment. So the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. This is a type of what happened before the flood. And God is executing judgment on these people. Well, how did it come to pass that the sons of Israel were mixing with the daughters of Moab? Just a few chapters earlier, we get the record of uh, Balaam and Balak. Balak, the king of Moab, doesn't like this massive horde of Israelites coming towards his kingdom, and he fears for his kingdom. They heard the record of what God did in Egypt, and Balak wanted these people nowhere near his kingdom to avoid the judgment that God brought on Egypt. They feared these people. So Balak calls Balaam and says, curse these people, and Balak is unable to. Balaam tries again and again to curse these people, but he can't. Each time he prophesies, the Lord changes his intention, and he blesses the people of Israel. But Balaam finds a way around this. He tells Balak he can't curse them, but he can corrupt them. He said, entice them with your women and they will corrupt themselves, and God will bring judgment on them. 2 Peter 2.15 reminds us of this. 
speaking of false teachers in the last days, he compares them to Balaam and says, they're forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Peor. What is the way of Balaam? Well, it results from loving the wages of unrighteousness. Balaam was paid a nice, decent sum for his corruption of the people of Israel. Revelation gives us a bit more information. It says, I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of Balaam is syncretism, God's people with the world around. They kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. What was that stumbling block? The enticement of the daughters of Moab. They would eat the sac things sacrificed to idols and they would commit acts of immorality, causing themselves to stumble and fall out of fellowship with God, not be about his business on this earth. Balaam is a tricky little dude. How much more can we say that about Satan? What does God do? Yes, God judges. But you know, God does not bring judgment without bringing salvation. God does not leave himself without a witness on this earth. And so Jared, I believe, prophetically names his son Enoch. We've seen this name before. Cain's son was named Enoch. It's a different Enoch. Because Cain dedicated his son Enoch to his humanistic ways. He named him after the city that he had built, which he dedicated and named Enoch. Cain's son was named after the work of his own hands. Enoch, Jared's son, is named after what appears to be a promise. He is set aside just as a priest is set aside for the service of God. And Enoch becomes the first prophet in the office of prophet. In Jude 14 and 15, we have recorded for us the content of Enoch's prophetic ministry. It says, it was also about these men, the same one Peter was talking about, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, Notice Jude also affirms that there are no gaps in the timeline. In the seventh generation from Adam, what did he do? He prophesied. He spoke the prophetic word of God, revealed to him in that day. And what did he say? Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. He prophesies about the coming judgment and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What's our key word here? Ungodly. Outside of the will of God. Acting against God's intentions and God's will. Against God's purposes. Now, Enoch is prophesying way into the future, beyond even the judgment that those in the generations of Enoch 
are going to experience. He is talking of the final judgment. His son's name, though, is a directly applicable prophecy. See, Methuselah stands out among the rest as well in that Methuselah's name is a sentence, not a word. Met means death. When you add the U on that, that's a verbal ending. Methu means to die. And then Shalah is the verb for to throw or to cast or to be sent. Methuselah means when he dies, it shall be sent. Enoch's ministry was a ministry of the coming judgment. And so when he names his son, when he comes, it shall be sent. What shall be sent? But the content of his ministry, judgment. When Methuselah dies, judgment is coming. So then when we ask ourselves, why did Methuselah live so long? The answer becomes clear. Because God is long-suffering towards us. Genesis 6:17, it says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall perish. And when does it come? It says, The water of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the seventh day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the skies were opened. Why is God so specific about the day this happened? Because just like all of scripture, this is a record of God's faithfulness. This is a record of the trustworthiness of God's word. Because on the very day that the flood came, Methuselah was dead. In the 600th year of Noah, he lived 500 years and then had a son named Shem. And in the 100th year of Shem's life, the flood came. In the 600th year of Noah, Methuselah died and then the flood came. Enoch's prophecy was in the text of Genesis. We don't have to go to Jude. The Israelites didn't have Jude. Enoch's prophecy is there. It's the name of his son because he recognized God's truth. And although it was a future truth, it was a recognition of God in an act of worship. And so we know the date of the flood. 1,656 years after creation, God destroyed that creation because of the sinfulness on it. But he did not destroy it before giving an extended period of warning. <clears throat> Enoch is not the only prophet God sent in that day. It says that Noah was a prophet of righteousness. Next time, we're going to look at Lamech's prophecy at the birth of Noah.
So we might ask then, how long was God patient? God didn't destroy the earth because Cain's line became evil. Cain's line was evil from the very beginning. Naama's father killed a man. Probably. For what? For wounding him. This corruption was already here on this earth. That's why we went into detail about how fast sin's effect happened. We didn't need 1,600 years for sin to get that bad. We only needed a couple of years. When did Cain kill Abel? Not too far into history. Probably within the first 100 years. So how long is God waiting in this period, from the beginning of corruption to the time he sent judgment? Well, if it happened before the birth of Jared, that these angels came to earth, then it happened before the year 460. God was long-suffering for 1,196 years, 1,200 years. What was happening 1,200 years before right now? King Charlemagne was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Hawaii did not have people on it. Algebra was invented by the Arabs 1,200 years ago. The Chinese were just inventing woodblock printing. God is long-suffering. That's 1,200 years of human advancement. What happened before the flood? In 1 Peter 3.18, we read, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits, now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. God was incredibly patient. During the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. At the time of Noah's salvation through judgment, only eight people on the earth were listening to God's word. We went from a revival before the days of Jared to corruption on this earth. And God waited and waited and waited until there were only eight people who would heed his prophetic word. And those eight people, by the hand of God, led to the seed line of Christ. In 2 Peter 3, 5, we read that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That speaks of creation. Through which the world at that time was destroyed. The world of the original creation was destroyed by the flood. God reforms it out of the earth, or out of the water. He destroyed it with the flood waters. But by his word, 
the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. There is another judgment coming. And why hasn't it come? Because God is long-suffering. God wishes that none would perish. It says God kept or fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. This is not a crux interpretum of the millennial kingdom. This has nothing to do with the millennial kingdom. This has to do with today. We've been waiting 2,000 years for the Lord to come back. The Lord is long-suffering. But for him, this is not a long time. It says the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. Just because it seems slow to us doesn't mean it's slow to God. But he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, I'm thankful that he did not come back in the year 2000. I'm thankful that he didn't come back in the year 1984. I'm thankful that he didn't come back in the first century, because how many people have been brought into the fold of God's kingdom since that time? How many have come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Even since the beginning of 2020, perhaps. How many people have finally become serious about seeking God because this earth seems to have little to offer. I'm thankful that the Lord is patient. And I'm sure for Enoch and for Methuselah and for Noah and Lamech, it was hard waiting. 1,200 years for the Lord to come back in judgment. But he came back in judgment, and he saved Noah. And we have the promise as well that he is going to save us from that future judgment. Not only do we have that promise, but we have a precedent to believe in that promise. And Enoch himself is that precedent. See, Enoch walked with God for 300 years, and then he walked with God and was not, for God took him. You know, this phrase, walked with God, is only used twice in the Old Testament. Now, we can walk before God. We can walk from God. And it's even said that God walks with us. But in the New Testament, there are countless passages that say to walk in the Spirit, to walk with the Lord. In the Old Testament, it was the father of the, uh, of the priests, Levi, who it says walked with the Lord. Levi revered me and stood in awe of my name. 
True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now we have what that looks like on the other side of the coin. One who is not walking with the Lord, it says, but as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people. Just as you were not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Now these priests had a responsibility. They were the ministers of God. Israel would come to the priests to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. This was their means of approaching the Lord. And some of the prophet, or some of the priests rather, did not walk with the Lord. In fact, that is why the Lord brought judgment on Israel. That is why God, in a temporary act of judgment, cast them out of their land. Because they were not walking with him, as Levi had. And so Levi received the promise that his line would be the priests of God who would walk before him. So this has implication for Israel. Israel has a priesthood. They had the priests of Levi, and they will continue to have the priests of Levi in the Messianic kingdom. It's been narrowed down to the line of Zadok. But Zadok was a son of Levi. These priests will again walk with the Lord in offering sacrifices in the same way that we have communion. In the age of grace, they will have commemorative sacrifice in the age of the Messiah. But this was also the purpose of God in carving out Israel, carving out a people among whom he would walk. In Deuteronomy 24, it says, Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. And he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. For Israel, this was in the context of fellowship. Personal defilement, ritual defilement, ceremonial defilement, broke fellowship. In Leviticus 26, that chapter which promises Israel would go through cycles of blessing and judgment, being kicked out of their land, being brought back in, but God would ultimately bring them back into their land and circumcise their hearts with a new covenant. Moses writes the words of God and says, So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. I will also walk among you and be your God, 
and you shall be my people. This is looking forward to the Messianic kingdom. When Israel, or when to, through, and by Israel, their covenant is confirmed. <clears throat> but you know, this also has implications for us, as you're probably well aware by now. All of Scripture was written for our learning, for our understanding, for our edification. And Enoch's walk should also tell us how we should be living with God in unbroken fellowship. You know, sin is still the experience of Christians. It's a misnomer. The Christians become saved and suddenly now they never sin again. In fact, that keeps a lot of people out of the church because they go to the church and say it's full of sinners. And my response is usually, yeah, that's kind of the point. That's why we're here. We are here to be in fellowship. We are here to learn about the one who makes it possible for us to be in fellowship. We're here in obedience because God says not to forsake the meeting of the brethren. This is part of our walking together with him. Being here, hearing his word preached, singing praise to him in recognition of his truth. This is part of our walk with him. And for a Christian, we don't ever have to break fellowship because we have our sins already forgiven. We walk in that promise. We confess our sins with him so that we don't fall out of fellowship. We agree with him about our sinfulness. We don't pretend that our sins are not sins. And we don't harm others by saying if you sin or are living in a pattern of sin, then you have either lost your salvation or never had it. Nothing is going to send them out of fellowship faster. But we recognize God's truth, that our salvation is staked on him and on him alone and on his finished work at the cross. And at the moment we believe and walk into that salvation through faith alone. We are forever sealed and secure in him. And so we walk in fellowship by continuing to trust his promises, to, by continuing to trust that his blood that was good enough to save us from our sins past and present is also good enough to save us from our sins future. And so we have the promise that he will save us in the future, just as he saved Enoch in the past from the judgment coming upon the rest of the world, not upon the church. In 2 Peter 3.10, it says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Because of the coming judgment on the rest of the world, because of our position in him that he is saving us from this, we ought to act differently than the rest of the world. People don't like the contradiction that sinners go to hell 
but Christians can be sinners and not go to hell. Well, we are still in the image of Adam. We still have our sin natures. Now, the old man is dead to sin so that we can walk in righteousness. And in fact, we are told to walk in righteousness, to be faithful. But we have this promise of salvation. And we hold on to this promise of salvation. So what are we to be in righteousness or in the holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are not looking for this coming destruction. We are not looking for an antichrist. In fact, I would say there is no prophecy but the rapture that we are looking for. There is no promise but the taking out of the way before judgment comes that we are waiting to see in our lifetimes. We will see it all, but we will be translated before that time. In 2 Peter 3, 14 to 15, it says, Beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace. Spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. As God is being patient towards us in this world, be found about his business here on this earth. And this has to do with our rewards in heaven. Because that is where we are going. From here to judgment. But for us, this judgment is not frightening. For us, this judgment has no bad consequences. For us, this judgment is the same thing as standing before the, oh, I don't even know what they're called, bima. In, uh, at the end of a race, when you get your medals, gold, silver, bronze, this isn't scary. You're being rewarded. Your rewards are being judged. Your works are being judged. But the great white throne judgment is one that we will never go through. And that is a terrifying one because not one person will be saved from that because we are divided before the judgment begins, because we are caught up out of the way in the same way that Enoch was not, because God took him. Some like to say, yeah, he lived a good life and he was walking with God and so God killed him early in his life so he would keep walking with God his whole life. So just so he would have a good record for his 365 years because God knew he was about to sin in his next 366th year. No. That interpretation doesn't work. You have to throw out the book of Hebrews if you want it to. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. Seems as clear as day to me. People say, Faith in the rapture is crazy. There's no precedent. Well, Genesis 5 is our precedent. 
It's happened before. Why can't he do it again? They say, well, taking up the whole church, if he did it with one man, why can't he do it with many? He did this with Elijah, too, in 2 Kings. He took Elijah up into the heavens. Now, Elijah's rapture was a bit slower than ours is going to be. Ours is in a twinkling of an eye. Elijah was carried up in a chariot of fire. But in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, after we hear of what happens with those who have died before us, who have died during the church age, that they will go up ahead of us. They will be resurrected. We have a different promise. Very similar. The same result, but a different process. It says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, with those who have been resurrected we will be raptured to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. This is a good promise. And so he says, comfort one another with these words. This prophetic promise is one of comfort. One of the promise of being taken out of the way before God sends his judgment on this earth. If it were a promise of going through the judgment and then being taken out at the end, this is not a comforting word. In Philippians 3.20, it says, for our citizenship is in heaven. You see, we might live here on earth, but we don't belong here. C.S. Lewis speaks of this and says, if you ever feel out of place on earth, that's because you don't belong here. You were recreated for a new location. We are children of God. And we are behind enemy lines. We, uh, we are, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a savior. We wait for him to come take us home. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. He is mighty to save. He is powerful to bring about this translation. And some might say, well, Jesus Christ was the first fruits from the dead. How could Enoch be translated before Jesus Christ was resurrected? Jesus is the first fruits of the dead. He is the first to be resurrected into a glorified body. But he is not the first to be translated. Enoch was the first to be translated by the mercy of God, pulling him out of the way before God sent his judgment on this earth. And just as the flood was the judgment of God, not the judgment of Satan on this earth, so the tribulation period from which we will be saved beforehand is the judgment of God on this earth and not the judgment of Satan. And we, the church, do not undergo the judgment of God because we have been saved by his son. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that the suffering of this present time, not that future time, this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. What testament are we in? This is Romans. This is the New Testament. 
these writers have a new way of speaking of the sons of God. It means the direct creation of God's hand. Born through the Spirit, we become a new creation. We are God's children. We are the sons of God, and we will be revealed in our glory with him. Because this is not the glory of men, but the glory of the Savior. And there will be angels at this time as well, descending from the clouds with him. Matthew 16 speaks of the angels who will be with him. But we will also be coming with him. This is the same event that Enoch looks forward to when he says many thousands of his holy ones came with him in judgment. Revelation 19 says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And who is coming with him? but the church in her glorified body. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Revelation 19 uses the same language as the promised rewards to the church in Revelation 2 and 3 to describe these armies of heaven coming with the Lord. We are clothed in his righteousness. Because just like Enoch, we walk with him. So we will walk with him forever and be taken away before the judgment, just as he took Enoch. So our takeaway this morning is God is not without a witness on the earth. Just like Enoch was his witness, so are we his witness. But God is not revealing to us new prophetic words. He has given us all that we need in his word. We are ministers of this word and we share it with the world so that the world might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and be taken away before judgment, just like we will be. For he has told us the end from the beginning. What a privileged position we sit in. He hasn't just recorded us a history that we can trust. He's recorded for us a future history that we can trust. He is coming in judgment, but we will be saved before judgment, just as Enoch was. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the comforting words of prophecy. We thank you that it is trustworthy. We thank you that it is understandable. And though it takes a bit of footwork, we are thankful that you have preserved the word for us so that as we read it, we can be edified and come to a knowledge of who you are. And you are a God of patience and a God of judgment. We pray all these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.